0: Hello, friends, and welcome to the Court of the Trashy Royals, our weekly exploration of our betters behaving badly all across time.
1: My name is Stacy. Thank you, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. It's Alicia here. We are going to be continuing our journey with some nobles behaving naughtily today, but not as naughty as they're going to next week. This week, we're going to get into Queen Victoria marrying her Prince Charming, mm. Albert, and talk about some unusual Victorian pastimes. Mm. In they, this, we have a lot of wedding, a lot of birth, a lot of death. They they had quite a few interesting pastimes. But before we journey back into 1840 today, I have ye here, scroll, filled with names of good nobles to give some thanks and praise to you here on Trashy Royals. First up, Stacey, we got some incredible reviews over at the Apple Podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Janie Bell8, Sabui Siddiqui, Dead Presidenters Are You. Those were some good <laughs> ones. It's a little bit tricky on the spelling there, but I want to give a special shout out to Ninja English Teacher. This was N- Ninja English Teacher's review, and I kind of loved it. Trashy Royals has it all. Two whip-smart hosts, plenty of trash to tarnish those crowns, but with a side of justification because I'm learning something about history, right? That's entirely true. I heard from Cindy M. She passed her little pub quiz show. Oh, excellent. I know. We do have a few more good nobles in the mirror to thank today, Stacy.
0: Yes, thank you for supporting the show and getting early and ad-free episodes at patreon.com slash trashyroyalspodcast. Sarah A. Kelly S. Diane T. Alexa S. Kimberly
1: N. and Jeanette. Holy cat! So grateful to you for coming to listen. So grateful to our Patreon audience as well. I think it is time that we, anon, to the lusty marriage of Victoria and Albert, introduce their offspring as well as get into some trends and pastimes of the Victorian era let's do it.
0: All right, Alicia, last week you talked about how Young Queen Victoria
1: had a sort of rocky start to her reign. She did, after a whole lot of bad press from 1837 to 1839. Queen Vix was up against the Flora Hastings scandal Mm -hmm. and John Conroy and Lord Melbourne and all that good stuff. It is early in 1840, February 1840, that Queen Victoria marries her first cousin, Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg, and Gotha. See, when people in the South do that, it's considered very trashy. Apparently not in the land of royalty. First cousin, Prince Albert. Victoria and Albert marry February 10th, 1840. And I need to tell you that it was definitely a love match. We see a lot of royal couples hook up over time where... It's for alliances. It's for different purposes that don't have a thing to do with love. Not these two. Many historians, in fact, have actually used the word obsession to describe how Victoria felt about Albert. We are most familiar with Queen Victoria with images of her after Albert's death as her mourning. Sure. Good Lord. She was a widow. She dressed in all black. She never smiled again.
0: Well, and think about when the camera really came into its own. That's, that's one of the contributing factors is there was a technological revolution during her reign. So
1: we don't have photographs of her much from her younger years. We do have some. And the thing that I want you to know in the first 20 years of that marriage before Albert dies, she's joyous. She is full of love and lust. Go back into your middle school days and think about all your posters on the wall. We were all young once. And this love affair between Victoria and Albert, I think, really reveals how lusty and full of earthly pleasures Queen Victoria is. Right? The image that we have of her from photos, she's seen as prudish and stern. Dour. Humorless. Dour, yeah but that was not who she was. No, early that is on. an invented it's an invented persona. It's the persona she takes on after Albert's death because she mourns her whole life. Mm-hmm. But in reality, Victoria, especially in her younger years, was pretty vibrant. She loved to have fun. She loved to laugh and also enjoyed sex a great great deal. Now, Victoria's younger daughter Beatrice, I feel kind of did the world a great disservice by editing and burning many of her mother's journals and letters after her death. Anything that Beatrice felt was a little too detailed or didn't really quite fit the image that she believed was appropriate for her mother to have. Sure, curating the legacy of a great person. Tricky stuff. Tricky stuff. Beatrice destroyed a lot. She edited much out as well. I don't think she wanted her mother to appear too human or too real, perhaps. Or or too randy. (laughs) As we know, Queen Victoria was a prolific diarist and letter writer. But sadly, today we only have a fraction of those diaries and letters, which is really quite remarkable because she started writing as a child. However, from the percentage, the minuscule amount of letters and diaries left... I need to let you know that Queen Victoria wrote in great detail about the joys that sex gave her and her desire to be alone with her husband, wink, wink. (laughs) Victoria has even been referred to by historians as Britain's sexiest royal. Almost 200 years have gone on between then and now, and maybe history bears that Britain's sexiest royal out Victoria was really pretty lusty, and she set quite a few trends, too. Anytime you get a new queen, new trends. Queen Victoria thrust a whole new era upon us, and we begin this with it's a marvelous day for a white wedding. <laughs> queen Victoria is who we have to thank for the white wedding dress. Really? Mm-hmm. That seems recent. Yeah. Two actual wedding traditions here involving white. Queen Victoria is the first bride, not the first bride to wear white, but it sure, sets the as trend. As a setter, yeah. Of a bride wearing white. Also, sub-trend, no one else is allowed to wear white to a wedding except for the bride. So, let's break this down. Some have wrongly interpreted Queen Victoria's white dress, this choice of color, as sort of a symbol for sexual purity. Really, Victoria chose to wear white, mostly because it was the perfect color to highlight the delicate lace on her dress. At the time, there was not really a specific wedding dress color. You wore the color that was complimentary to you or the best dress you had.
0: Yeah, I'm sure a lot of that was related to to class as well. Certain fabrics were not available
1: to certain classes at various times. Well, additionally, before bleaching techniques were mastered, Mm. white fabric is very rare. It's expensive. It's more a symbol. The color white in garments uh, is more of a symbol of wealth than purity. You had to have some cash to have white clothes. It costs a pretty penny. Okay, now, Victorian England, lace makers across England rejoice, right? They're thrilled by the sudden surge in popularity of lace. So Queen Victoria, young bride wearing white, made white from that point on the popular color for brides in the tradition indoors. Also sets up every bad mother-in-law or best friend story, because Victoria did request that none of her other guests wear white, as not to take away from her distinctive choice of color. And Reddit is full of stories of people violating that norm today. Holy cats, is it ever. So maybe Queen Victoria was the first bridezilla, but I do need to let you know that she was a happy, happy bride. The morning after her wedding, her diary entry reads, Hoo-hoo! I never, never spent such an evening, my dearest dear. Albert sat on a footstool by my side, and his excessive love and affection gave me feelings of heavenly love and happiness I never could have hoped to have felt before. Hmm. He clasped me in his arms, and we kissed each other again and again. His beauty, his sweetness, and gentleness— Really, how can I ever be thankful enough to have such a husband? Oh, this was the happiest day of my life. Wow. Well, hey, good on you, Vicky. Holy cats, right? This is most certainly a love match. Uh-huh. According to an article in the Sydney Morning Herald, quote, historians have long acknowledged that Victoria had a high libido. Some have implied she was some kind of sexual predator, who devoured a tolerant but exhausted husband. (laughs) She was undoubtedly extremely passionate, the fact of which clashes with the strong associations Victoria often carries of dour old age and puritanical condemnation. Given how fraught sex was at the time for women, with limited access to contraception and abortion, and no pain relief for childbirth, Victoria's unbridled and unabashed physical enjoyment of her husband is remarkable, unquote. Like, think about Queen Vix, right? How curious she must have been at this point in her life about men, about sex. She's had John Conroy. She's had all these shady influences of men around, and the ones that you do know are terrible, and you don't get to know the other ones but to actually have the sex after it has been so much discussed and talked about and alluded to through your life. Now I need to let you know that the fact that the couple had nine kids. Wow. It's a commitment. Proves just how much Victoria enjoyed that sexual relationship that she had with her husband. This is nine kids in 16 years. That's that's a lot of living. They're not even Catholic. Can't even be Catholic. There wasn't. <laughs> legally, they could not be
0: Catholic, but there was no birth control to speak of. I mean,
1: my kingdom for the pill, you know? Nine kids, 16 years. All of those kids are coming back around. Hold on one oh, second. Oh, so they all survive. Yeah. Wow, that's unusual. I mean, mostly, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, we're going to get into those kids next week because trashy royals galore. But here's the thing I need you to know about Victoria. She's not fond of kids. She hates pregnancy and childbirth. Wow. She doesn't ever think one of her children is cute. Like babies. Yeah. Babies are so cute. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what baby you are. You're a baby and you're, you're cute, cute. and You want to, you smell good. And we mm-hmm. want to pinch your cheeks. Victoria never picks up a baby, compliments a baby, thinks about a baby until her very last one is born, Beatrice.
0: Interesting. I will say, given the coldness of her mother's relationship with her, it, it's interesting, though. Could, it, have, could have gone either way there.
1: Oh, uh, Ultra
0: maternal or apparently
1: not particularly maternal. Not particularly maternal. However, Victoria was very unwilling to sacrifice sex with Albert to avoid becoming pregnant, so as a result, Victoria often writes of resenting the constant pregnancies and number of children that she had. All right, Vicki and Al, holy cats, nine kids. I'm going to introduce them here, but they are all coming back around again, I promise. We begin with Victoria. First up, a girl. Vicky Jr. It is Vicky Jr. That's what they call, they don't call her the junior part, but she's Vicki. Then we have Albert. Albert is going to be Edward Seventh. We know him as Birdie. Okay. Dirty Birdie. Dirty Birdie. Edward mm-hmm. the Caresser. He's got quite a story. Wow. Birdie. Yeah. <laughs> Next up is Princess Alice. Poor Princess Alice. Parliament wrote a note to Victoria and Albert because Princess Alice is the third kid. And they get a note, congratulations and condolences on your child because she's a girl. Uh Uh-huh. Congratulations and condolences on the birth of your daughter. So Parliament was just hoping that the spare would pop out and that would be that? (laughs) Well, next up is the spare, Alfred. Next up is Princess Helena. Princess Louise follows. You're going to love Princess Louise. Duchess Louise, actually. Duchess of Argyle. Oh, she's like rebel rebel. She's so much fun. Duchess of Argyle Louise. We... Follow that up with two more boys, Arthur and Leopold, last child Beatrice. All of them have fascinating stories. These nine kids, though, get a load of this, produced 42 grandchildren. This gives Queen Victoria the name of the grandmother Mm -hmm. of Europe. Sure. Again, stay tuned for these mostly trashy kids and their offspring. They are going to come for you, but... Breaking it down, nine kids in sixteen years is a lot for anyone. Mm-hmm. And then I want you to layer in the trauma cake of Albert's passing in 1861. In that 20 years, Victoria and Albert happily married, big time sex life, nine kids, 16 years. Beatrice, the youngest, is four when her father passes away. Well. Wow. After that, everything changes just a little bit of setup there now to your point from earlier victoria could have gone either way maybe anti-her mom Mm -hmm. or following along in those same traditions victoria does have a troubled and complicated relationship with most of her kids she was very controlling highly critical of them although there was no kensington system there wasn't a an official protocol of requirements, but they are always under every one of those kids. Queen Victoria's strict management. They are treated harshly, even in their adulthoods, if they decide to go against their mom in any way.
0: It almost feels like the revenge of grandma. It's a
1: little bit of the revenge of grandma. Mm. And we're going to talk about that uh, carrying forward that with just a, a little bit more here. Many of Victoria's grandchildren would marry each other, which is a family tradition. See, we do that in the South, but many of those grandkids. Wait, ma- the, 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 grandkids would marry, marry each other, each other. Yes. And marry into other Royal dynasties, right? They just, they're just, just playing the genetic lotto, aren't they? So between Victoria's children And grandchildren, I need to let you know that there is a treasure trove of trashy marriages, affairs, breakups, divorces, not to mention more than a few scandals, as well as a distressing number of Nazis coming within our loop.
0: (laughs) It's a lot to look forward to.
1: More of those stories coming up. So much trash. Now's a great time to take a quick break. Leave Victoria and Albert in happier days enjoying their lusty lusty marriage when we come back we're going to talk about a few trends unusual trends of the victorian era the things that the normal folk were up
0: to oh my see on the flip okay alicia let's talk about those
1: wild and wacky ordinary victorian englanders we think we have so many trends today but y'all it's the same as it ever was those Victorians had some really interesting hobbies and practices that might shock you or not. The thing I need you to know is that a great many of these strange Victorian practices, at least to us were rooted in their obsession with death. Mm -hmm. It's most likely because Victorians were surrounded by death constantly in 1837. When Victoria assumes the throne, the life expectancy was only in the high 30s. By the end of Victoria's reign in 1901, life expectancy had risen, but it was still sitting at a whopping 48 years. I am not
0: sure that the culture recovered from the Black Death yet. Psychologically,
1: Yeah. No, it's a lot. It's it's a lot. It's a lot. Just the idea
0: that you would just be wiped out at any time was just ever present. Death is
1: everywhere. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the reflection of the culture is going to be wrapped up in that death. Another terrible, not fun fact at all, another sadder fact. (laughs) In some of the poorer areas of London, the death rate for children under five years old was as high as 33%, meaning one in every three kids wouldn't make it to their fifth birthday.
0: No sanitation, no particular medicine to speak of, and impoverished circumstances,
1: food insecurity. I mean, you, you can think of all the reasons. So cultures and civilizations throughout all time, most certainly find a way to express what is on their minds and in their hearts. And death was on the minds and in the hearts of Victorian England a lot. Ooh, this list. First up in our Victorian practices involving death. I think you're going to be excited about this one, Stacy? Death photography. Tell me more. Photography at the time was a new invention. It was still really expensive. As noted. So most people didn't have money to have many, if even one, photograph of themselves or their families. However, when a loved one died... Mm, Important moment. Hey, it's now or never, man. Let's weekend at Bernie's this. It's exactly right. So if you want a lasting image or memento of that person, you do it after their death. Yep. Wash the body. Dress them up nice. Sit them up. Let's get a few pictures. Give them a little stick. Uh, Post-mortem death photography becomes popular. So often in these photos, the deceased person and sometimes their family members would weekend at Bernie's. They dress up in their finest. They pose together for the photograph. Sometimes it's obvious that the person was dead. But many times the dead person, to your point, was propped up in a chair or even held up with some kind of makeshift stand or small structure to support them still standing like they would be in life. And people tended not to smile
0: in photos back then. For whatever reason, photos from that time period, people
1: are very stern. Because it takes a long time to make a photo. You have to maintain the same position for so long. Well, then the decedent here is actually best positioned. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit more disturbing in this weekend at Bernie's death photography is that oftentimes the dead loved one's eyes are propped open so they will still appear alive. Sure. In a photographer's journal of the Victorian time, it was acknowledged how difficult (laughs) achieving eyes propped open. It was hard to make it happen. And, uh, see no scotch tape, like all the things they lacked. and And we have a handy tip to help with the issue of propping the eyes open. Quote, This you can effect handily by using the handle of a teaspoon. Put the lower lids down, they will stay, but the upper lids must be pushed far enough up so that they will stay open to about the natural width. Turn the eyeball round to its proper place, and you'll have the face nearly as natural as life. If you didn't want to go the teaspoon route, Another option was just to paint on eyeballs after the picture had been developed. Sure. That's probably natural looking. Don't think we haven't always done filters on our pictures. Well little, little photoshopping. Yeah, sometimes pink was added onto the cheeks in the photo retouching to give the lifeless face, you know, a little bit of color. And if
0: for the younger listeners who... who- Maybe or are like, what is going on here? People died at home at the time. People dying in hospitals is a pretty oh, yeah. modern. So yeah, like grandpa would just die in his bed and then the family would wash the body and dress up like different. Time to get the photographer down. Yeah, and, and call the local photographer. Well, not call. They would send a runner.
1: <laughs> sure. We're really just anachronistic today, aren't we? Whew. All right, believe it or not, these post-mortem pictures are one of the major reasons why photography sales started to boom and become popular in general. Death photos of celebrities were also a super big seller. When Victor Hugo passes away, he's one. There are a lot of people of the era. Uh, Celebrities... When celebrities' Path, these death photographs were made into cards and sold as souvenirs. So you could have a photo in death of your favorite author, actress, musician. Weekend at Creepy. Okay. (laughs) Next up, Victorian death pastimes. This is where professional mourners, meaning we will pay people to officially mourn the dead, become a thing. You could have a job as a professional mourner, totally a legit job, and considering how frequently people died, if you're good, it could be a really lucrative career, high demand, lots of dollars. What does this entail? These professional mourners were called mutes. This is still a practice common today in parts of Asia, but the mutes would stand in their mourning clothes looking very sad. They would typically carry a big stick and follow behind the hearse and coffin. And it becomes such a common practice that during the Victorian age, it was basically considered a requirement even for modest funerals. Even in Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens, a mute was included, sort of reflecting that custom of the time. All right, so artificially boosting funeral turnout, what's next? (laughs) Morning jewelry. Morning jewelry typically is made out of the hair of your loved one. So this is a tradition that was practiced in Victorian England, but also within the United States. Mourning jewelry, this is M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, was jewelry worn by a mourner, which doesn't seem strange, except it was typically made out of the dead person's hair. So after Albert's death, Queen Victoria wore a locket of his hair around her neck at all times. A locket with hair was not nearly as extreme, though, as some other examples. In the United States, many women made elaborate wreaths of hair and wire, often incorporating floral designs. You could buy a pattern for these hair wreaths. You could go down to your country market and find a pattern that you could purchase or maybe in a women's magazine. They teach you how to mm-hmm. make these dead hair floral. Sure. Accompaniments. Don't worry though. It's not just wreaths. You could have a ring, a bracelet, a pin or a brooch as well made from hair. It seems odd, but I, I guess morning customs are inherently odd well, it's not just people that die. Animals die, too. So let me tell you about the Victorian trend of hats made from taxidermied animals. Mm-hmm. According to the Victorianist, milnery fashion took a truly bizarre turn. This is in the 1880s when, quote, hat crowns grew tall, offering a generous display area for, in the most extreme examples, an extraordinary array of animals, including cats and squirrels sometimes a bunny you just put a taxidermied animal in your hat i've definitely seen
0: victorian era taxidermy scenes like taxidermied chipmunks dressed in finery
1: playing cards we're coming coming up next to okay anthropomorphic taxidermy yep just an abundance of dead animals who doesn't love it This anthropomorphic taxidermy becomes a popular pastime for people in the late 1800s. Now, this is not your typical taxidermy. Your dad caught a deer, mounted it over the fireplace. This is not that. Yes, they catch deer. That's... I don't, I mean, but, you know, like you see animals mounted and hung. Yes. That would be our current thing today. My uncle... Buster went hunting and caught this elk. As you know, I grew up in a house with a giant caribou head mounted I on the wall. I wasn't going to mention the caribou that is hanging with Boo is everyone's <laughs> friend, greets everyone at the door. This isn't like that. This isn't like no, Boo. Mm-hmm. No. No. <laughs> These animals were dressed as people mm-hmm. and displayed or... Posed within their mm-hmm. photographs as if they were humans engaging in like normal human, human activities. Yeah. So these scenarios often were displayed in cases or dollhouses and illustrated a scene. For instance, dead kittens having a tea party. Sounds like a Smith's song right it there. Kind of does. Mice or rabbits going to school, engaging mm-hmm. in lessons. Education is important. Squirrels playing poker. Sure. <laughs> Chipmunks in parlor games. They even do full wedding parties attended by all kinds. Like, it's an animal wedding. Oh, the whole forest. The whole forest shows up for the animal wedding.
0: Hmm. Feeling bad for the small animals
1: of Britain. Fascinating, right? <laughs> I got one more thing. And I guess we could tie this in with white weddings and old lace and some arsenic. Two, let's talk about just poisons in the Victorian era. Because it's strange to us today, but people in the Victorian era loved arsenic. They intentionally washed and treated their skin with arsenic. Hmm. Yeah. Seems good. (laughs) It's not good at all. This practice begins, uh, reports were published in the 1850s of styrian and lower austrian peasants eating arsenic oh no okay you want to know why to improve their figures oh i bet
0: (laughs) (laughs) let's induce a wasting disease
1: and freshen their complexions have they not read flowers in the attic apparently not in 1851 the medical world learned of this practice through an article published in the viennese medical journal by a Swiss physician, naturalist, and traveler, Johann Jacob von Schudi. That's probably right. Probably right. So <laughs> this article gets released like arsenic, get in, losers, we're taking arsenic. It's like miracle
0: cure or whatever, like hot new
1: diet drug, hot new skin cream thing. So arsenic started to be used in as many forms as possible. Mm -hmm. Lola Montez, a Victorian actress and traveling beauty writer will write in her book, the arts of beauty about how women in Bohemia, which is now part of the Czech Republic regularly bathed in arsenic springs, which gave their skins a transparent whiteness. Cause you're dying. Seriously, flowers in the attic, people. Arsenic was also in green dye, Mm D-Y-E, the color green. So any green clothing or green cans, maybe you have a a kitchen item. Sure, green bottles. Green bottles. Anything using the color green in its commercial or product representation contains... Enormous amounts of arsenic. Add into that, just for fun, wallpaper becomes extremely common and fashionable in the Victorian age. And uh, the green wallpapers, if you can imagine, contain exactly all of the arsenic. All wallpaper contained arsenic, but green wallpaper contained most, the, the, the most enormous amounts. Is this why people were often sent away to the coast or
0: whatever to recover from whatever vague ailment was, and and they would
1: thrive there, and then when they came home, they'd get sick again and die? 100%, because their walls were covered in arsenic. Fantastic. Because arsenic poisoning (laughs) mimics the symptoms of cholera and other illnesses of the time. Sure. Nobody even connects that the wallpaper is the thing is poisoning that is poison. everyone. Yep. Victorian era, you. Mm. It's a lot. I felt so good by the seaside. That sea air having nothing to do with the fact that our parlor is poisoning you. That is. Mm. Trashy royals. Trashy crowns. Honestly, oh. Victoria and Albert, good on you. Nine kids, 16 years. That is a feet especially when you don't like kids victoria it's not like she had a lot of options though lack of birth control all that well yeah but if she didn't like sex so much Mm. there might have been half the kids right Mm. like you do your duty but nine's pretty and think about the irony of that right for victoria the most unlikely ruler whose uncles can't make it happen right victoria open for business the fertility engine of europe yeah Incredible. Or at least of European monarchies. Trashy crowns. I whoo, nine of them, sixteen of them. We are gonna come back next week and talk about Victoria's trashy kids. A lot of good stuff coming up on that one. I would just say the crowns should be very tiny
0: and placed atop the heads of taxidermied rodents. <laughs>
1: <laughs> In our kittens playing poker scene. Not kittens. <laughs> I reject kittens. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this episode of Trashy Royals today. Don't forget, if you want a little bit more of us, you can check out our other podcast, Trashy Divorces, Mm -hmm. a good podcast about bad relationships. And you have a separate podcast as well. I do. Done and done. We are right now in the heiress tour. So if heiresses are your thing through time... It might be the perfect time to check into done and done. We can't tell you how much we appreciate you spending your time with us. Don't forget two bucks a month over at patreoncom slash trashy Royals podcast. We'll get you these episodes early and ad free. And until I think we meet again next week on the next fair Thursday, friends, polish up those crowns. Keep your eye on the throne. Find some birth control. <laughs> Or chloroform. We eventually start having chloroform to help with births. Uh. So much coming up. (laughs) Thanks again, everybody. Have a tremendous weekend. Big love to y'all. Bye. Bye.